All right. Good evening, everybody. How are you doing? I want to give another shout out if you're a guest this evening and a visitor. Thank you so much for making us a part of your Sunday. And we really hope that you feel at home. We are doing a standalone sermon today. It is not a continuation of the series we just did on Navigate. But I do think it is somewhat appropriate to, to, to this series, kind of as a conclusion of the conclusion of the series. And I want us to talk on the theme of grace. I, I've titled this message today, um, wait a minute, that can't be right. I wasn't trying to be funny when I thought of the title. I was wrestling with scripture and realizing that even when Paul talks about grace, he has to put an asterisk to say, this doesn't mean you can sin. It is so good, so incomparable, or like also inconceivable that he has to kind of close the loop of grace because it's so good that you could end up thinking that through grace you could just sin and forget about the consequences. That's how good grace is. And I think sometimes as a preacher you try to preach grace in a way that still has a little bit of law in it. Paul also talks about uh, uh, the fact that the law is like an abusive husband who who tells you this is what you you need to do and they never lift a finger to help you do it. And they're always reminding you about how far you've fallen from the goal, from the standard. And, And Paul says, no, listen, because of Christ, you are dead now to the law. So in other words, what we try to do is this. You have a loving husband. And you go, you know what? I love you, husband. You're very loving. But so that this marriage can be balanced, you need to bring in the abusive husband every now and again. Just, you know, just bring him in. Let him shout at me a little bit. Let him hit me a little bit. So that we can be balanced in our marriage. And Paul says, no. It, it, grace And then he even explains, even when he says, no, 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 uh, I'm not saying this, that you should sin. And then he explains afterwards that we are dead to sin. In other words, he goes back to grace to tell you that you shouldn't sin. He doesn't give you law to tell you that you shouldn't sin. He gives you grace to tell you that you shouldn't sin. Grace is inconceivable to the human mind. It is beyond our comparison how good God is to us. Probably one of the best uh, analogies of this, or rather the best story uh, about this, is Abraham. Abraham, if you don't know him, is a guy in the Old Testament. We are first introduced to Abraham in Genesis 11. The only thing we know about him in Genesis 11 is that his father's name is Terah, and that his wife's name is Sarah, and that she's barren. And then, out of nowhere... Genesis 12 begins a conversation between God and Abraham. And here's how the conversation goes. God steps into Abraham's life and he says, listen, Abraham, I want you to pack all your bags and I want you to go to a country that you haven't been to. Then he says this, I will bless you. I will bless you and I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. I will make you so great that anyone who blesses you, I will bless them. And anyone who dishonors you, I will curse them. 
and I will make your family so great that it will bless the nations of the world. There is no preceding explanation as to why God chose Abraham. We don't have Abraham's resume, the good that he did, who he was, you know, how he lived his life. There is nothing in the text that Moses writes about that helps us conceive and understand why God would bless him the way that he blessed him. Nothing. And the whole point, I believe, is that Moses is trying to make this simple point. That the grace of God is too great for us to understand. Too great for us to to conceive. And there is no resume that can match to the quality of grace that he gives you. No resume. And so when grace confronts your life, it leaves you with this big, bold, underlined three times, you know, italics question. And here's a question. Will you live your life and make decisions based on your resume or based on his grace. Every day of your life, until you die, you will have to answer that question every single day. And how you answer that question will determine the depth of peace, the depth of joy, and the depth of confidence that you live in. How do you live your life? Do you live it based on your resume or do you live it based on his grace you see if you choose to live your life based on grace that choice is not only the best choice but it is the most sensible choice you can make honestly it is the most sensible but not only that it is the most freeing choice you can make for your life to live from grace So this evening, I want to look at two tales of grace, both from the New Testament. And both of them leave us astounded and wondering, man, can this be true? Can this be right? Is God this good to us? If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 7 for the first story. And as you turn there, let me pray. Lord, this evening, I pray, Lord, beyond my words and even means to communicate this message, that you would set us free, that you would do something, Lord, in our midst that would allow the Christian who is too shy to admit that they live a joyless life to finally come into contact with the resurrection power that lies in grace. For the person who's far from you can experience what it feels like to be loved unconditionally, accepted beyond measure. This evening, Lord, do something beyond us. Allow us to experience something beyond ourselves and our comprehension that we might walk into the beauty, the depth of grace. Amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 41 to 50, reads as follows. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? 
Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your, hu- I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want to look at two sets of people today. The first set of people I want to look at is people who believe that their goodness makes them acceptable. In the story... If you go back to the first verse, verse 41, Jesus says, he's telling the story because a woman has just walked into the room who's known in the city as a prostitute and and someone who would be labeled as a sinner. She walks into the room and goes to Jesus' feet without any conversation, without any, excuse me, sir, could I do this? goes to him, breaks an alabaster jar before Jesus, and she begins to weep and cry, and she wipes his feet with her hair. And the scene is amazing for her, but it's a bit disturbing for the religious people. And so Jesus, in verse 41, says, he starts to share the story, and he talks about debtors. He says, well, there was a moneylender who gave money to two debtors. In this one phrase, Jesus takes the religious and the sinner and he places them in one category. And he says both the religious and the sinful individual are in debt. And they cannot pay back their debt. They have tried, but they can't. Both of them cannot pay back their debt. And so he cancels their debt. And then he mentions that one owes more than the other. He doesn't say which one, but he mentions that one owes more than the other. And then he asks them, you tell me, who has been forgiven more? The danger in growing up in a society where you're told that you're good all the time, where your perception of Christianity is it is for the good people. The danger is that even when you get saved, you'll get saved because it is what good people do. It, it won't be as a result of you realizing that you are wicked. Words that we are not allowed to use. Sinner, words that are not common in our language. That to be a sinner, as we've spoken about many times, means to miss the mark. Uh, that, that basically we miss the mark of God by either reducing him or replacing him. We reduce him by making him common so that we can allow ourselves to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And we chase ecstasy. And when Christianity provides the ecstasy that we need, he becomes our everything until we find something else. 
that becomes our everything. We reduce him to a place whereby he can work on our terms, whereby we don't have to work on his. Second thing, we replace him. How we miss the mark, right? How we sin. We replace him. We realize, oh man, this is God, but his standards are too high for me, so the only thing I can do really is to replace him. Let me find something else to give me a definition, to give me identity, to give me a sense of who I am. And so we find that in money, in family, in sex, or other things that we begin to prize above God himself. And those things begin to define all our decisions. That's how we miss the mark. The problem in this text is that Jesus is trying to point out to these Pharisees this simple truth. You believe that you are so good that you don't believe you need to be forgiven much. And the order, the progression in the whole text is this. Those who know that they've sinned much receive much forgiveness, and as a result of receiving much forgiveness, they love much. And he's saying, no, 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 but the good people, the religious people, they think that they've just sinned a little. Therefore, they only want to receive a little of forgiveness. And as a result, they only love a little. Some of us this evening, the only reason we feel like, man, why do I, don't, why do I not feel so passionate about God? It's because we think we are good people. We don't think that we need him. We think that he's good for us. We don't think that we need him for the salvation of our souls. That in and of ourselves, our souls are broken, wretched, wicked. Can you believe that the sin that overtook the world, the sin that allowed all of humanity to become sinful, was the act of eating a fruit? How many of you have eaten fruit in your lifetime? (laughs) If that was a sin, how many of you would quickly forget that you ate fruit? You wouldn't even bother in worrying yourself about, well, I really had to repent about eating fruit. The whole point in even that moment is that sin is not based on what you do, but on who you've disobeyed. So, You might have sinned a little in your book. But because of who you disobeyed, you need great forgiveness. Because he's so holy, so perfect, so good, that even the little darkness that you think you possess is magnified in its full-on splendor when it comes into contact with who he is. But until you realize that your goodness is not acceptable before him, you will live with little forgiveness and little love. So here's the danger for some of the people who, who, who struggle with this. You, you believe that being good will make you not just acceptable before God, but it will make you acceptable before people. You, you need to be a chattered accountant in order for society to accept you. 
you need to be a, 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 what, a doctor in order for society to accept you. As a result, all of culture says, hey, how are you doing? Oh, what do you do? Reinforcing that before I can accept you, you must tell me what position you hold. And, and when I say, no, 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 I'm a car guard, all of a sudden I change my tone towards you. I don't speak to you like I would speak to a CA. All of a sudden I speak to you like you can't speak English. Okay. <laughs> and so here's what happened. Good people work hard so that society can accept them. And so they're always frustrated. Oh, my word, I failed this test. And they work hard up nights, waking up early mornings, trying to get that qualification for acceptance. And when you get it, culture ups the grade on you. It's not enough to have a degree. You need an honors. And you, you get around the honors club. And soon after you get around the honors club, they're tired of you. It's not enough, enough to have honors. You, you need a master's. You get around the master's club, you know how it is. It's not enough. You need that PhD, right? You get around PhD, it's not enough. You need a Bentley. You know what I mean? There's a progression. There's a progression. Some have started with the Bentley. That's troublesome. The point I'm trying to make is this, that your goodness, when you use it for the sake of acceptance, it breaks you down internally. It breaks you down. Your goodness, when you use it as a means to get God to accept you, it breaks you down internally. You become tired of the word. You become tired of God. Because every time you come to him, he's like a hard taskmaster who's constantly requiring of you to be better, to be good, to maintain the standard. Now, here's the reality. He has a standard that he's called us to maintain. But there is no amount of goodness that you have that can reach that standard. Let me show you through this text. If you can go back to the text, I think verse uh, 43. Is it this one? Sorry, next one. He says this to him. I entered, this is Jesus saying, Speaking, he says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He's not trying to say to them, you need to do more for me to accept you. What he's saying is this. The smallest thing done in grace will always be larger than the biggest thing done in works. That's what he's saying in the text. The smallest thing, the smallest, this lady was a prostitute. The only thing she does in this moment, she comes with complete desire for forgiveness and she's weeping, crying, wiping his feet with his hair and what she's done has become righteousness. Why? Because she did it from grace. She didn't do it to be accepted. She did it because she knows how accepted she is. The smallest thing you do in grace will always be greater than the largest thing you do in works. Works tires you out. 
It wears you down. Works gives you a bad perception of who God is. But when you realize that God himself has paid the price so that you do not have to work anymore for approval. Anymore. One theologian said this, which I thought was so profound. He said, now that you know that you don't have to do anything, what will you do? That's the reality. That grace has freed us from and it has freed us to. We don't have to. I don't have to be good. I don't have to do all the good things to be approved. I don't have to at all. At all. But now that I don't have to, in Christ that he's fully paid it completely, now what am I going to do? Now what am I going to choose to do? And the assumption, the internal assumption that Paul is making is this, is that through grace, the, the underlying or the functional saviors that we have, the, the hidden things that create the motives as to why we do things, those things get healed. Yeah. That he saves us from those things. Martin Luther says this about deeds. He says, God doesn't only need to save us from our bad deeds, but from our damnable good ones. I know some of you are thinking, oh, did he just curse? (laughs) Sorry. I'm in grace. I'm joking. (laughs) joking. God didn't just save you from your bad deeds. Oh, Christian, he saved you from your good ones. You don't have to be good anymore for him to love you. But now that he loves you, what are you going to do? How are you going to live? Now that you've found grace, now that you have found unconditional love, how now will you live? And Paul is trying to, to say the following in Romans 4 all the way to 7, that those who think they've heard heard the message of grace and yet continue to deliberately do bad actually haven't heard the depth of the message of grace because the message of grace motivates us to live life completely differently. That though we know we might never reach the standard of holiness, we no longer depend on what we can do. We live fully dependent on what he has done for us. That we are thankful to be accepted, but also being accepted has empowered us to live differently. My son, Thursday night, uh, we took him to the emergency unit, and I texted uh, three friends of mine, say, hey, just just pray. Um, We were at home, we had some visitors over at home, and we had put him down to bed, and then he started crying, whatever, and then we went my wife, I said, oh, just check him out. Maybe he took, took him out from the cot and his eye had swollen up, right? And now the, the fluid that was in his eye was kind of trying to cover the pupil. So it was just all of a sudden just trying to rush up on his eye. I was thinking, ah, boy, close up, boy. Let him sleep. He'll be fine tomorrow. <laughs> My wife, being Zulu, thought, let's go to the emergency unit. <laughs> so... I was like, all right, all right, then. Marriage calls, yeah, you'll find that out there. I said, okay, cool, let's go. Uh, so we went, my cousin was, was with us that night, and so, so we went, and, uh, 
And the doctor checked him out, said he had some bad allergy. Now, my son is having a time of his life. He's never seen a doctor like that before. So he's telling my, his sister, oh, I went to see the doctor. You didn't. You know? So he's having a time of his life. Um, and one or two other things happened that night that, that were not so great. And then I, I went home. Next day, I was coming to work. And I thought to myself, it was a quick thought. I thought to myself, you know what? Maybe if I, if I had prayed more this last week. My wife and I have been trying to do that fasting thing every now and again. If I had done that, if I had stuck to my reading plan this past week, I think this might not have happened. Came to work, kind of let it be, just didn't think about it. As I'm preparing this message, then it hit me. Oh, what I'm actually saying is this, that God is good when I'm good. That God will do only when I do. And until I do, he won't do. Until I'm good, he won't be good. So in other words, I, I blame myself even, I blame myself over trusting him. That I, I, keep, I keep looking, okay, now I need, to, I need to make time in my schedule. I need to make more time in my schedule. I'm not reading enough because if I was, I wouldn't be doing it. I mean, if I was I would look as thin as Pastor Roger if I was, if I was just reading more. It's not about running. Guys, this is a message about grace. You don't need to run. Just read the Bible. <laughs> right? Okay, Pastor Roger is not thin anymore. He just came back from holiday. But before holiday, Pastor Roger, I would look like him. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm saying this so that you know. There's no one who's not susceptible to this. That even in your moments of desperation, you fall into law. You go into that place of trying to beat yourself up so that he could be good to you because of your works. Your works cannot save you. Your works will never be good enough. But his works are always good enough. It's on his works that we work. It's on his works that we are holy, that we become holy. It's on his works that we choose righteousness, not on ours, not on ours. Next story I want to read, the second tale of grace is found in the book of Philemon. Now Philemon for some of you, but Philemon. <laughs> I love this story. I, I've, I've always, this this, this book is the last book written by Paul in the New Testament. Now, he, he, his books are not really placed in, in like time chronological order. In fact, they placed in, in the order of his biggest book to his shortest book, starting with Romans and then the last one here being uh, Philemon, unless if you think he wrote Hebrews as well, okay? But I, I've always kind of schemed through this book and not really taken time to look at it. One chapter. But the story is amazing. And what it tells us of God's grace is amazing. Here's a backdrop. Philemon is a slave owner. And being a slave owner in those days was different. Being a slave those days was different. You can't read this text through the lenses of what we've gone through. 
You can't read this text through the lenses of what people in America went through. The text here is that uh, slaves during this time could also buy their own freedom. And sometimes if they were so poor, they would ask to be slaves to a master. And they would actually live a better life than someone else who was poor. The context was so different. Yes, there was abuses of the system, but it wasn't the slavery that we know. And so Philemon is a wealthy elder in the church in Colossae. And as a result, many people were coming to meet at his home and they were having church in his home. Now, we don't think that he was the leader of the church, but at least because he was wealthy, his house was big enough to uh, 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 accommodate the people who came for church. Onesimus was a slave in his house. The word Onesimus was a common slave name, which means useful, useful. Onesimus is his slave, and somehow Onesimus disappears. We think that Onesimus probably stole something at, uh, at, at Philemon's house, and then he ran to the place where no one could find him, which was Rome. Rome was big enough, no one could find him. And so here he is, he's hiding out in Rome, probably busy spending out the last bits of money, and, and probably he encounters someone as he's going from bar to bar, someone who says, hey man, how are you doing? And he's like, man, I'm good, but I'm on, I'm on my last coin. I just ran away from my master and I'm spending the last bits of money that I have. I'm tired of running. And most likely the person who was speaking to says to him, listen, there's this guy, he's weird, he's short, but man, can he preach? When he talks, you feel something happen in your soul. You need to come and listen to this guy. He's in prison, house arrest, so we can visit him. Paul was in prison in house arrest, these guys come, and what we understand from the text is that Onesimus now gets saved through the ministry of Paul. He hears the gospel through Paul, and he gets saved. At some point, I'm sure Paul founds out the story of Onesimus, and then he does something incredible. Many people believe that the Bible doesn't address slavery, but this chapter by itself speaks so much about what early Christians thought of slavery. And Paul says something phenomenal. He said, he encourages him to go back to his master. But he says, I'm going to write a letter for you. And so he writes this letter, this, this letter to Philemon. And he sends him back. Now, I want you to understand that when you were a slave and you ran away, especially if you stole something, you were supposed to be killed for what you did. Now, Imagine being the slave with this letter, running back to your slave master, who has full permission and full rights to kill you. Full permission and full rights to, to, to what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for here? To, to label you as a complete infidel for the rest of your life. And he's going to the master with this letter. I can almost hear the conversation of, as he's walking to the house, the master coming out, looking at him with all this anger. And he's like, just wait, just read, just read, just read. Read the text. Just read it. And the text begins to play out. And Paul is, is, Paul is talking to Philemon. And, and the first bit of the chapter, he's, he's going on about how, hey, uh, Philemon, I, I know how good you are. I know how great you are. Man, I'm so proud of you. I see how much love you have, how much faith you have, how much grace you have. 
but, but, but listen, something has happened to this boy Onesimus. He got saved. Then we take it from verse 15. He says, for this happened, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. This is, this is the two verses I want us to look at. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Charge that to my account. Grace looks like those last two statements. He's saying, because of your relationship with me, treat him like you would treat me. That's amazing. Then he says, if he, if he took anything, if he stole anything, if he owes you anything, whatever wrong he's done, I have an account, charge everything to my account. It now becomes my responsibility. I will pay you back everything. But treat him like you would treat me. He's no longer your, your, your servant or your slave. Now he's your brother in Christ. You see, what the cross did, how the cross released grace, was that Jesus himself paid the price for your sin, paid the price for your brokenness. He charged all that you did to his account so that the father would treat you as he would treat his own son. That he would bestow favor on you as he would bestow favor on his son. That his love towards you would know no bounds because his love knew no bounds towards his son. One of the reasons this, this chapter messes me up so much is that sometimes the way I parent my kids is through the law. That I, I try and motivate them to do right based on a reward that I will give them. And as a result, my daughter every now and again says to me, hey, daddy, look what I've done. Was it good? Which is great. And then every now and again, she might ask, okay, but I did this, what do I get? Or when she's been punished, she would make a comment like, yeah, daddy, you don't, daddy, you don't love me. She said that twice. It broke my heart. I was like, oh, no, don't you ever do that again. I will punish you if you do that again. <laughs> but here's what I realized, that for no reason I have to find times with my kids where for no reason whatsoever... I say to them, hey, Vaya, do you know why I love you? She knows that now. I say, Vaya, do you know why I love you? Her first response is, it's because God made me in his image. I said, yes, baby, but do you know why I love you? It's like, no, no, daddy, I don't know. I said, because you're my girl. That's why I love you. And then we move on. Every now and then, hey, Vaya, do you know why I love you? Because I want her to get it. That it's not because of what you've done that makes me love you. But it's who I have chosen to be for you. That position will never change. No matter how much you do, no matter how less you do, no matter how badly you do, 
My position as your father will never change. This is why I love you. How we parent our, our kids is so critical to them growing up, understanding the environment of grace, that, it, that, they, that they don't end up trying to do things, following culture in order to be accepted, but they know that they are so accepted, they can be confident to do anything without the approval of men. Us knowing that we are utterly forgiven allows us to be bold in life. It really does. There's a quote by a psychologist. She's a secular psychologist. I don't really know her name. But she says something so powerful about forgiveness. (laughs) There you go. I quoted her. (laughs) There she is. Here's what she said. She said, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if I could just convince them of their forgiveness. If I could just make sure that they understood that they are forgiven for the things that they've done and for the things that people have done to them, that they are forgiven. If they could get that, they would all go home and they would all be fine. But because most people struggle to know that they are forgiven, they're still stuck, paralyzed in positions in their life that are less than optimum. Stuck. There's a story of a, a lady who had an abortion. Had an abortion and uh, some time later she got a new boyfriend and, and she wanted to tell the boyfriend that she had had an abortion in her past relationship. Didn't build up the courage. The boyfriend proposed to her and now she's freaking out, thinking, oh my word, I should tell him, but she, she didn't tell him. Then they get married, and she still doesn't have the strength to tell him. And so she goes to the priest, and she tells the priest the story that, man, I, I know I need to tell him this, but I'm struggling. And so the priest says, hey, why don't you do the old-fashioned com- confession? Just do a confession for now. That's the kind of service that we offer. And so she, she went to this service that they offer and st- stood in that, or sat in that classic confession room, And she confessed her sins. She came out and she said, I feel a burden is lifted. I feel like I can go tell him now. I feel lighter. I feel like I can go tell him that I had an abortion. The story goes that the priest looked at her and said, what abortion? But that's how God forgives us. He forgets. He's completely forgotten the sin that you are still encapsulated with, still thinking about, crying over. He forgave you and he's forgotten about it. Wiped it as far as the the east is from the west. He has wiped your sin completely away from you. Psalm 103 says this best about the grace of God. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Here's what it says who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I want you to notice that every action is from God. And what is his action? He forgives He's the one who heals. He's the one who redeems. He's the one who crowns. And for those of you who don't feel satisfied in Christ, he's the one who satisfies. 
He's the one who satisfies our souls. Nothing we can do can satisfy us more than Christ himself giving us his grace. When Paul speaks about, it's my last thought and then we close. When Paul speaks about the husband who's abusive, he says this. You're dead to the husband, but now you are alive to a new husband. And this new husband has the ability to produce fruit in your life. He says the law was impotent. The law couldn't produce fruit in your life. But this new husband has the ability to produce fruit in your life. That we don't just leave one husband and we aren't hinged to something. But we leave that husband, but we are completely hinged to a new husband who is so different from the old husband. Grace is radical by nature. When you hear the message of grace, it should shock you internally how much he loves you, how his goodness is for you. This evening, as we close, I really believe that God wants to heal some of you from your goodness. He really does. I, you know, I, as, as, as a preacher, you, you work hard to preach a message that people can understand, can apply, and so you, you try and figure out ways to make it easy, memorable, but also have theological depth. But I am convinced today, regardless of what I've said and how I've said it, his grace is here to help you, to free you from your goodness and from your sin. Those of you who think your sin means that you're unacceptable. Those of you who think that your deeds have made you acceptable. Both of you have fallen into the category of people in need of great grace. So this evening, if that's you, if you're saying, man, Lord, I know I need great grace. It's not going to come from the amount of Bible you read. It's going to come for some of you from realizing the depth of your need for him, but also realizing the height of his love for you. Allow your heart to be moved by that this evening. Allow your heart to be touched by that this evening. Let's take a moment.